It was my utter pleasure to speak to Lucy and Chris this week. I've admired their business since they launched only three years ago and I was thrilled that we finally had the opportunity to sit and talk about the incredible brand that they've built, Lucy and Yak. I so respect Lucy and Chris for all that they have achieved. And we ended up talking about how their own values have underpinned every single decision that they've taken for the brand. And hearing them talk, hearing their passion and this commitment to create a better future is something I admire so very, very much. To see all that Lucy and Chris have achieved in such a short space in time is completely remarkable. And there are a few moments where they describe why doing good as a business is so important that will be sound bites that will stay with me for the rest of my business journey. Their future is so very bright, and I do hope you will enjoy listening and hearing their wonderful story. I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not on the High Street and Holly & Co., and I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs, and those who just simply inspire me, and asked them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown Lucy and Chris, it is so lovely to meet you both. I know we were going to meet in person, but it's having to be virtually at this point in time. Um, I'm recording from my desk um, and I've just been on a big long walk, really pumped to do this. You're sitting, is it your home that you're sitting recording to today? Yeah, so we're, um, we're in our flat in Brighton. And we've we've also been we've been out for a run. We've been for a swim this morning, and then we've jumped straight on the sofa to meet you. Wow, <laughs> this is going to be really good. Um, we're fifteen weeks now into lockdown in the UK. So, how have you both been keeping? Pretty pretty all right, to be honest. We were we were laughing about it, weren't we? That like we over prepared for most of it. But yeah, from a business from a business point of view, from a personal point of view, we've. We've ended up uh, exercise. Everyone's gone different directions, haven't they? In lockdown, yes, we've, we've yes. gone the we've ended up the exercise route. We've, uh, <laughs> not, the, not, not, not the couch potato route. We haven't gone the, <laughs> yeah, haven't gone the exactly. alcohol, the alcohol and couch potato route like some people have. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I must. I must like nearly a stone or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been great. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Good for you, Chris. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to get stuck in a bit about your backgrounds. You know. The journey that you were on before the idea of the business. And Lucy, if I start with you, because I know you studied fashion, but yeah. it soon became quite apparent, didn't it, that classic fashion wasn't for you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I ended up studying fashion at university off the back of, I, I really liked art. I was always great at art when I was at school. That was where all my top grades were. So I went on to college to study art. My dad talked me out of just studying fine art at university. He's like, you're not really going to get a job in that, are you, Lucy? So so I ended up going doing uh, fashion buying management and retail at, at Huddersfield University. And yeah, I, I quite quickly realized it wasn't for me. It just didn't, the traditional sense of fashion and like, you know, I, I did enjoy the course, some parts of it. I really liked the marketing module and I really liked 
the sort of ethics modules because they were just starting to talk a little bit about mm. stuff like that. I remember watching a, um, a really horrendous documentary on a sweatshop in um, China um, from a that was linked to a high street brand at the time. And I was like, and, and that's kind of the only thing that's really stuck with me. We always laugh because when we, like it was 10 years later that we ended up creating the brand and I never worked in fashion in that 10 years. And Chris said to me, when we were started out and we we're like trying to figure things out, he was like, Lucy, can you not remember anything from university? Like, did they not teach you anything? And I'm like, I remember that I didn't agree with sweatshops. <laughs> that was about all I can remember. But actually, funny enough, you know what I mean? Funny enough, that was the thing, wasn't it? I just, yeah, I just really, I felt turned off by the industry. Just, just not the kind of place I felt like I would meet the people I like spending time with. Yeah. And yeah. Chris, and Chris, tell me about your background. So mine's probably a bit more uh, business and salesy. My dad was a salesman, and when I left school, I got into sales and didn't go to university. I was a Jehovah's Witness. I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, so didn't go to university, left being a Jehovah's Witness, uh, sold uh, loads of things, TVs, cars, etc. Because you were both working, you were both car salespeople, weren't you? And this is where your love for each other over the bonnets of a car was formed. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, do you know we we were we were friends? So Lucy Lucy never sold anything. I was I was the business manager, so I, I taught Lucy how to sell. I trained, I trained Lucy person. how to sell cars, and we were amazing together. Mm. We were like so good. We were just such a uh, such an amazing team, and uh, and then we went travelling together. And then you went you went um, to New Zealand. Is that right? And it, you became well. You, you you started making tobacco pouches. Yeah. Um, tell me about this because it all sounds incredibly <laughs> romantic. And I when I looked at the picture of you on your website, you had those mm. illustrations of about us. It was you two together and on your little mat selling tobacco pouches. I yeah. could just picture it. What, yeah. what was that time like for you? Because yeah, as I said, it sounds a beautiful period of your life. Do you know, it was one. It was amazing, and like because we'd kind of we'd gone traveling, but with the intention of like partying hard while we were traveling, and that was that was on the agenda, and because um, that's what we were like. And then we New Zealand just really beat that out of us because New Zealand's so chilled, and we kind of traveled around. We we hired a van and we lived in this van, and we traveled down the country, and we just couldn't find a party, like not in the sense that you get in the UK, and we were like. Maybe and then we started, you know, really slowing down a bit, and we learned to make the tobacco pouches. A, a couple that we met um, taught us how to make them, so they'd been taught by someone else. It's almost like passed on. It wasn't yeah. like just our idea; it had been passed on from traveler to traveler. But um, we started like buying and um, turning like old clothing into these pouches. Then, so that was like how we kind of um, your USP. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that this was a real period of time that, as you just said, you sort of decompressed in a way didn't you and sort of that ignited something else and potentially entrepreneurial spirit was you know sort of being born little did you maybe know through these pouches and you traveled a while longer before you headed back to the UK where you bought this camper van and named it Yak which I just love if that's that's how the name obviously has come about with your company and you started selling vintage clothing from the camper van was it this point that the business started to form in your mind was it you know what what, what was this thing about dungarees as well where did this all come from 
just rewind a little bit. I think because you make you make you make quite a good point there about New Zealand and the, uh, the the sort of entrepreneurial spirit. And people keep asking us like, when did the business start? And it was just such a long, gradual mm. process. You said about the entre- entrepreneurial spirit in New Zealand. There was there was loads of little hustles that we got involved yeah. in. Like mm. one time we we were staying at an avocado farm, and he said you can have all the avocados that fall on the floor. So we put like hundreds <laughs> of avocados in backpacks walked them to the side of the road and then sold them by the side of the road. We, <laughs> we made, made $100 in like $100 two hours. About two hours. And, and you got that buzz of like selling something. We, we love sure. selling. Yeah. We, we get, such, like, a yeah. buzz. We get mm. such a buzz from selling. But it's those little things that at the time you don't go, like that's the entrepreneurial spirit. Mm. That, that right there is the entrepreneurial yeah, spirit. That is you, right but, there. Side of the road, avocados, <laughs> tobacco pouches. Yeah. That is your entrepreneurial spirit, <laughs> almost sort of um, like blossoming, isn't it? Mm. It was yes. sort of coming slowly out, I yeah. can imagine. Yeah, yeah, and you kind of you kind of don't know. Had we not given ourselves that couple of years out to just to just I suppose change and grow, we might have never got here. It's almost like we could have just kept on that wheel of like working sixty hours, partying on a weekend to release. You never have that free time, and I suppose this is what lockdowns kind of doing now is. And I mean, not everybody's had that opportunity because a lot of people have probably been worried. But I think I think some people have. Yeah, it's it's that space that you just. It isn't possible for everybody. I understand that, and it, but I think it's so important to have yeah. that space to really like, just have the time to like think and come up mm. with these ideas or let them form organically. It kind of like comes out in you really naturally if you give yourself that space. So then you were in Yak selling yeah. vintage clothing, mm. and this is your dungree point, right? This was when you decided you were going to specialize. We had to come back from traveling, which we had no intention of doing. But Chris's stepdad was ill, so we had to come back. And we, when we came back, we were like, oh, my God, we do not want to get a job. What are we going to do? We've not got this idea of a business even still at this point. We were just like, we absolutely do not want to get a job. But we bought back the, we bought back we, the clothes. Well, we were well. in Thailand when we decided to fly back. We lived in Bangkok Airport for seven days because we had um, we'd, been, we'd been teaching English in China and we had a bank card that was Chinese. That We didn't realize when you leave China, you can't use it anywhere apart from in airports. So we had about a thousand pound, two thousand pound left in this bank account, but it was trapped in there. So all we could do was buy things in Bangkok Airport. Oh my god, that's my idea of heaven. I love yeah. that that you had to buy. Normally, you get told off for buying stuff at airports. And you know what, Holly? As well, because we were living in the, in the airport for seven days, we started noticing other people that were living in the airport. <laughs> And uh, and I said to Lucy, I said, like, hey, I said that guy over there, I, I've been seeing that guy for a couple of days. Let's go and, and talk to him. Let's start building a bit of a community like, in no the airport. And she's like, no way, that's gonna get us kicked out. <laughs> we were like, right, we can either go back with this five six hundred pounds and it'll last us a, a week when we get back, or we can spend it and you know try and take something back with us that we can try and sell on eBay. Yeah. We initially thought because you know we were still old school eBay, we didn't know anything else had, had existed then. So we came back to the UK with this like. We drag loads of stock past so this got, past this customs guy in Manchester wait, Airport. Wait, I got uh, I got back to Manchester Airport and I didn't have any change for the trolley, the pound, one pound for the trolley. <laughs> and I got this the bag that I bought was this massive plastic red bag. It must have been about it must have been about four foot tall. Think about them like old old uh, so heavy, bags, so heavy I couldn't lift it up. So okay. I had to drag it, and it was bright red as well. I had to drag this bag. <laughs> And, and, you know, when you go through customs, there's never anyone there. And this one time, there was about seven customs officers all stood at the doorway. And, and the I'm dragging. Just... Yeah, honestly. And I'm dragging this bag. It's so heavy. I'm dragging this bag. I just try to look, like, really normal. I couldn't pick it up because it's so heavy. 
And I just walked straight through. I just walked straight through. And uh, no one said anything to me, honestly. It was like uh, it was like somewhere out of a comedy program, you know? But that oh was my goodness. So that was the start. We came back with this vintage stuff, and Chris's sister Naomi, um, who stays on on um, up to date on trends, she mm. told us about Depop, um, which was kind of like just starting out then. So we spent we spent about a year just trying to figure out how to take photographs properly. Like, what did Depop want to put you on the explore page? You know what? And so we kind of built up this platform, and then once we sold those. Those, that's the stuff that we brought back. We started then going to charity shops and, and finding vintage stuff. And we started to realize we got a bit of an eye for what was on trend, what people were liking. And dungarees came about because, you know, the 90s was making a massive comeback and it's it's still in full flow now. And dungarees, you know, the, the episode of Rachel from Friends wearing those dungarees was in everyone's mind. And dungarees just seemed to be like, every time we got a pair, we could sell them for like 50 and 60 pounds. It was like, oh, let's make some dungarees. When researching, you said something really interesting, which was when you think about jeans, you think about Levi's. Mm. And when you think about boots, you might think Doc Martens. Yeah. But when you think about dungarees, you're like, yeah. there is no one. No. You know? And that's this that moment, isn't it, for founders where yeah. you go, really? There isn't one? I know, it's and you, and you start Googling it and you're like, <laughs> oh, no, really, there isn't. Now, don't tell anybody, you know. <laughs> We stumbled across something. Yeah. And so and so at that point, you set off on your travels again, but this mm. time with quite a specific purpose to find a manufacturer that could work with you to help produce these designs. And you literally found the most perfect person. And I'd love you to tell this story because I think this is sort of the heart and soul of Lucy and Yak. You know, the, the, the way that you looked upon this relationship what has happened since um because for others going off to india to find a manufacturer would be quite a utilitarian task mm. and maybe quite transactional whereas yeah. actually for you it was very different so tell me about what happened there Do you know i think i think what it was with us is we, we went to india with you know we, we didn't we weren't necessarily going to look for like a big established factory that was used to supplying high streets and things like that. We were just like, you know, we know that like India is full of like little market towns where you'll find a tailor that can make a few pieces for you. So we, we kind of went with that intention of like, well, we could make a few pieces, sell them on Depop, see how they do. But I was also obsessed with going to India to learn more yoga and become a yoga teacher. And so I was really fixated on that, but we went separate ways when we first got to India and I was walking down the street in this t in, in Rishikesh, which is like a really big yoga um, part of India. And I was walking down the street and I bumped into this guy and this girl that we met in New Zealand like three years before. Oh, my goodness. You know, I mentioned to them that we were maybe looking for somebody to make clothing. And they were like, oh, we've just had this stuff made in this town called Pushkar in Rajasthan. So they were showing me this these um, waistcoats and things they had made. And the quality was really good. And they were like, you know, it's really ethical. You know, you know who's made it. So... I phoned Chris and we straight away got on an overnight bus. Went to uh, meditate. I was, I was in there. I'd gone up to. Uh, I'd gone up into the Himalayas to meditate and write a book. <laughs> um, and uh, three days in, I realised how boring that was. <laughs> so Lucy phoned me like, "I found a tailor. Do you want to come meet me at Pushka?" And I was packed the bags on a bus <laughs> out the door. <laughs> oh my goodness! And so yeah, so then you went there, did you? So you 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 went yeah. and you met a very important person to your story. We did. So when we first got there, like Pushka's like this market. It's got just like about a mile long street of like 
stall wow. after stall making like it's all clothing and it's every every stall's got like a, a guy sat at a sewing machine but we did actually find out when you dig a little bit deeper that guy's not making all of the clothing he's altering stuff but most of it's made in this bigger factory on the outskirts and it comes into so you don't actually know who's making the clothing it feels like you do but you don't we just didn't have this connection with anybody and I don't know why you know in the back of our mind we always knew that we needed to know who made it we needed to know they were paid fairly we, we, but we also, I think one of the main things was we wanted a supplier that we actually like and like spending time with. And it's not just a business relationship because we want to go and spend time in India. We want to go and spend like a few weeks. Mm. So, you know, all these people that we'd work, we tried a few different ones and we just weren't feeling that connection. There was a lack of trust there and it just wasn't feeling right. So we kind of gave up. And then this guy who, um, who was a, a cook in the hotel we were working in asked us what we were doing there. And he's like, no way, my brother's a tailor. Why don't you come out and meet him? We can't afford a shop on this street. So we, you know, obviously we can't pick up any customers like this. So we went out to this village, which is about 10 kilometers outside of the main town. And that's where we met Ishmael. And, you know, just instantly when you can tell somebody is like exactly what you're looking for. He, he just, you could tell he was really caring. You could tell he, like, he already had this amazing setup. There was him and two tailors. So it was his business, but he never, he always, he has this saying of like, no one's boss here. We're all the boss. And he would, he would like go out and find the work. He would do the pattern cutting and cut out the garment. Then the tailors would then, the two tailors he had would stitch it together. But he split everything 50-50. So he would give the tailor 50% of the money. He would keep 50% and his 50%, he would buy the materials, pay the overheads and whatever was left was, mm. was his money. So he already had this amazing like sort of system in place that yeah. meant that the tailors got their fair share of the of what was earned. But the other the other thing they were lacking was, Pushka is a very tourist town, so it's seasonal. So they would go months with no work. They were making stuff for the local markets. So, and, and, you know, you might you might pick up a pair of leggings on that market for like 50p. So mm. how much Ishmael and his team were getting paid for it, I have no idea, but it wasn't a lot. And so now now he's built, you know, this his, his factory employees, I think nearly 90 people he messaged us saying the other day. We're really, it's grown so fast in three, in three years. And he's built two buildings and... It's, yeah, and he's still got the same business model. Fifty percent goes to Taylor, fifty percent goes to him. He covers the whole, the overheads and pays the other staff that he needs now. So it's just it's just been this like really easy way of doing it that we know that not Taylor's easy. not easy. Like there's been a lot. Yeah, mean. we're gonna we're gonna go yeah. on to not um, easy. Not easy in terms yeah. of quality and build. But what I absolutely love, and we'll talk more about some of the beauty that I think is your brand. Um, normally, when you talk about a fashion brand, or all of this part that we're talking about right now is invisible. Yeah. You know, there is, it's, it's not part of a person's brand, but you even refer to him as a partner in the business. He's yeah. part of your story. And I, I think that that is just this beauty that we're going to talk about and, and why I believe potentially you've had so much success. this series I've been offering listeners the chance to win a one-to-one 90-minute mentoring session with me thanks to NatWest. That competition is now closed and this week I'll be announcing the lucky winner. 
But don't worry, the NatWest Business Builder is still available to support you on your journey. An entirely free e-learning site packed full of information and advice covering everything from well-being to finance. It really is an incredible resource. Head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker to find out all the details. Now, as you know, each week we run a competition with NatWest who in a world first give away their ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to hundreds of thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. Hi guys! Ever wished you had a book that told your kids how precious they are? Or have you gone in search of a kid's brand with a positive message? Well, Philly and Friends creates gorgeous, diverse children's books, wall art and products, beautifully designed to instill self-love and confidence in our little ones. We believe representation matters, and therefore we aim to add the much-needed drop of colour in the sea of children's books, toys and products. I started Philly and Friends because I couldn't find quality books and toys that featured characters that looked like my little girl, who is now three. Our debut picture book, Who Do I See in the Mirror, was listed by Hello Magazine as one of the best 15 books to teach kids about diversity. We are passionate about raising confident kids and all our products are designed to do just that. You can see more at phillyandfriends.com. Thank you. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, we've created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. It wasn't after long that you had your first collection ready. Lucy, you modelled the designs. Chris, you were the amazing photographer, Mm -hmm, Uh, you you uploaded them, yes, onto Depop and sold out within hours. And that must have been an extraordinary moment, like a complete rush that, you know, this was it. People wanted what you had created. And Lucien Yak was born. Tell me about this moment, a young company, phenomenal growth, all the bolts coming off the train, Mm. you're trying to hold on. Tell me about that moment. Um, yeah, it's um, so we've just turned three uh, this month. Um, I can't believe it. You feel and, like you're about thirty. Yeah, I'm three. Uh, it's, a lot's happened in in three years. Um, it was only thirty pieces that that first that first day that we put them on the, on Depop, and they all sold out. We were so excited, weren't we? We were sat in this cafe and we we uploaded one colour. So we had like six pieces of each colour. We uploaded one colour, sold out. We uploaded the other colour, sold out. We were like, oh we, we, we thought, I remember phoning Ishmael because like Ishmael was like, you know, he was quite excited about what was going on because he never worked with directly with a, an international brand or, you know, like he'd yeah. always worked with local markets. And so we phoned him. We were like, they've all sold. And he's like, no way. What? But we've gone over to Rishikesh because Ishmael's over in Rajasthan, Pushkin. We've gone over to Rishikesh to photograph them in the Beatles ashram, um, <laughs> oh, and so uh, which is brilliant. We were sneaking in the Beatles ashram um, <laughs> to, to get, get the morning uh, sunlight. To get the morning sunlight. Yeah, so I, I, as soon as they sold out, I just jumped back on the bus the next day. Um, I seem to like jumping on buses the next day, don't I? Uh, and so I went back over to Pushka to get to source more corduroy. Again, sometimes I think we make it hard for ourselves. We're trying to source 
corduroy in the desert. <laughs> um, and so, so what happened was we were, we, we were in India for like nearly six months and we were sending it back to Lucy's mum. Lucy's mum was doing a, a job, then coming in from a job, opening boxes that we'd sent to her. And then Lucy's mum and dad, who, who were both still working full-time jobs, were then, um, they, they were doing, bringing the stock in, they were doing goods in, and then picking distributing, and picking and packing, distributing back out to uh, back on, out on, At first on my mum's kitchen table, so like people were getting like coasters in their, in their parcels. Someone got a coaster <laughs> in their parcel, yeah. Um, and do you know what? This is a really important, this is a really, really important point in this because we, obviously we've got friends of, uh, who were founders and things at different stages. And one of the hurdles, one of the early hurdles is um, employing someone. You, you mm. get to kind of a size, you'll probably know this yourself, you get to kind of a size where you're like, I need someone, but I'm scared to commit or the money's not quite there. We never had that problem because Lucy's mum and dad refused to take money from us. Mm. And they were just they were just working. They were just doing all this for like, what, five months, six months yeah. without, without pay. And then once we were like in a position where Lucy's mum could leave her job and come and work for us yeah. and, and get properly paid, we did that. And we've, we've obviously made up for the, that time period back then. But they were just so uh, – Lucy's mum and dad are just so unassuming and just so – uh, they just they'll go along with anything. They'll just go along with anything and not ask anything back of you. I mean, this is what was, this is what was so. Well, funny when I was, came back and went, I want to live in a camper van because I thought my dad was like, "Oh, she's back from traveling. She's going to settle down. I'll get a job." And I was like, "No, I want to live in a camper van." He's like, "You want to borrow some money?" <laughs> like, yeah, you know. Uh, and, and it's, me- it's an amazing thing, isn't it? When um, founders start with that love and support of our friends or family or loved mm. ones, who, if they feel like you're onto something, they truly will do all it all they can to lift you up and that money you save from having to pay someone in those early six months it for, it's a game changer. Yeah, it could have been made or break. Yeah, absolute mm. game changer. Um, and it's a, support networks are a really strange thing, aren't they? Because they can be both a, a blessing and a curse. In, in that this this instance with Lucy's mum and dad was a, a game changer. It was a it was it was the catalyst. Um, but also sometimes you can find that support networks, certainly with ideas and, and trying new things, support networks um, can, can sometimes hold you back. You know, maybe you get family members who are, they, they don't want you to be hurt. You know, a lot of family members don't want you to get hurt. And, and you know, if I'd have bowled in and gone to my family, guys, I'm going to I'm gonna make pink uh, corduroy dungarees. What's everyone's <laughs> thoughts? They would go, Chris, Chris, come, come and sit down. <laughs> Get Lucy, get Chris a, a cup of tea. Like, <laughs> listen, just calm down. So I think with us traveling and being out of the country and kind of breaking loose from a lot of our support networks, mm. it, uh, we it didn't tell anybody us, anything until it happened. It, it, like, it, it was yeah. just happening. It allowed us to kind of like lose touch with reality. <laughs> we don't sort of check in with anyone or ask anyone anything. And, and, and your dad made a great point once. He just said, he said, I've never seen any, I've never known anyone that will just fly to another country and just walk around knocking on doors. And that's what, that's what we did. We that's were just going to knock on doors. Like, that's the Jehovah's witnessing him that's the witnessing knocking, me, on yeah. knocking on doors. But I love it because there's um, certainly recently, I say it more that this word naivety is, you know, we, we say, oh, I'm so naive. Actually, Naivety is where I feel so many things are, are totally grown from. You are getting off a plane and you're walking and knocking on doors. Yeah. And actually, that's what everyone else wouldn't do, which means that your opportunities are there literally behind those doors. And you had that mindset to be open to doing something new. Mm-hmm. And I think naivety is this wonderful thing. And if we go from mum and dad, basement, packing up coasters in parcels, you coming back, mum and dad now employed or mum employed, 
Tell me now about your headcount, because I, I want to just touch on it so that people understand in this three years, your headcount and what's happening in the factory as well. So 2017, so July 2017, we registered the business. We then we then took the commitment and moved into our, our own unit, which is like a council run unit, just on a monthly roll in. Uh, we get in there for Christmas, we move everything in, realise that this is too small over Christmas. Uh, when the, when the, the council come back to work after Christmas, we go to them and say, listen, can we have next door? So in the space of two weeks, we've gone from one unit to two no, units. Goodness. And at this point, we're employing like three people. It was just like meeting people on checkout. Um, I was employee was, uh, we met her on a checkout at B&M. <laughs> and she was lovely. So I said, do you want a job? So she came for the job interview. We've had the she job interview a friend in with a pub. Went, My friend wants a job as well. <laughs> <laughs> we interviewed them and they were brilliant. So we, we They've become like on. this amazing little duo that are still with us now. Yeah, that, uh, um, one of them runs Mary, Depop, Mary Steph, and, and Mary runs oh, Returns. Oh my goodness. Um, so we, we keep growing uh, and we outgrow the two units in, sort of mid-2018, and we move out in in August 2018, we move out into the warehouse we're in now, which is about a 10,000-square-foot warehouse. And when we moved, we had, what, like 12 staff? Yeah, now we've got total, because we've we've got the warehouse to sort of finance. Admin offices are in Yorkshire with about 30, 35 people in there. Uh, And then we've got, um, we we recently opened um, an office in Brighton and the shop in Brighton. So we've got just just over 60 employees. And in the factory as well in India? What's that now? So Ishmael's got about 90 employees was his update just last week, actually. Yeah, and they're making, and he's he doesn't make anything for anyone else. He's just yeah. he's a hundred percent, he's a hundred percent Lucy and Yak. Mm. It is literally an unbelievable story because mm. you're experiencing this growth, and you're just in year three. Mm. Yeah. So you know, actually, you haven't started plateauing at all, and I suppose your brand ignited for me this ethical social responsibility a brand that I recognized on Instagram I was seeing in my daily life uh, people wearing what Lucy and Yak talking about you as a brand rather than just an item of clothing and I'd love to hear this ignition of passion around ethics um, and it being at the absolute heart of your brand from day one tell me about what you think is the importance of that for Lucy and Yak, like, do you think you could have had this journey without it and could have just rested on the design? Do you see what I mean? And the mm. color palette and... Yeah. Mm. That's a good question. It is a good question. Really good I question. think because we've never had a business plan, we kind of try and look back at like, what was the, what where were the moments that, that like, so that we can package it to, to give to people, you know? I think the product and the design, I think, I think we've got a lot of customers that do just follow us for that. But I think the word of mouth and how the brand spread I think we've just got real life people just walking around telling the story for us because they because the story resonated so much with them. And I think, you know, like often I think bigger brands that are really established, been around a long time, are trying to sort of create, like kind of work backwards and create this now, yeah. create these stories. Retrospectively going yeah. back and trying to sort of plug the gaps. Yeah. It doesn't really work, does it? No. And like, you know, we never did it for marketing reasons. And we try and we actually laugh because often there's a lot of stuff that we never actually say. We've almost got too many things to talk about. Some brands we see, you know, obviously people complain a lot about greenwashing now and brands kind of making out they're a little bit better than they actually are. But often we play down some of the stuff that we do because we hate the idea of using those things as marketing tools. It's just like we just tell the bits of the story that we feel, you know, should be shared as and when we we feel like they should be. So it's, I think we're really seeing this, like, 
And it shocks us, even like some of our partners, like some of our factories in India that we work with that are not, not Ishmael's factory, they're, they're meeting up and they're chatting and they're discussing how they can do better for like the brand. And I'm like, is this normal? And Sonia, who we employ out in India now to look after our production, she's like, no, this is not normal. Like <laughs> they're each other's competition. And well, I think you've, you've, you've caught people, you've caught people. And this is the power, isn't it? When you do something, you sort of didn't quite realize what you potentially was stumbling upon but it was genuinely the dna of the brand and i think that that's what was interesting people retrospectively doing it now the power of the story oh it's lucy and yak do you not know about this (laughs) company you know you've got loyal fans who are now doing your advertising who are doing your marketing for you and this is quite uh, an amazing thing for anyone listening and small businesses listening you know you don't need a massive marketing budget if you've got a fucking amazing yeah. story well you know, been, it, i remember when someone first said to us you ucg and i was like sorry you user generate ugc and i was like what does that mean and they were like user generator content and i'm like they're like you're doing that really well but and i was like we're doing what really well we did, like we didn't know it was a marketing thing that you, that you do it's just happened really organically but it's it, you can see it's really attracted the type of people it attracts to the brand are just amazing. Like the best people we've ever met in our lives. Like, yeah. we're like, what is with this? Like every single one of our staff is just beautiful, beautiful people, you know? Like all of the people that we work with in India, like and all of our customers, like just beautiful, mm. beautiful people. And I'm like, what? Like, what is that? That's like, the, the brand's just attracting this, like these amazing people. It's it, when you think about, and I'd love to ask you if you have any more statistics, but when I was researching for this podcast, I was, I sort of knew it was bad, but I was shocked to find out that 87% of produced clothing ends up um, either incinerated or on a landfill. Mm-hmm. Um, this is unsustainable, crazy. Tell me more about the fashion industry out there. Tell me more about what you're not competing with, but what, what you're an outlier, you know, you're doing something that others now are looking, big brands, no doubt, are looking at you um, and going, what are they doing? You know, and you can't believe this, but they will be. But tell me about this industry that you're sort of associated with. Can I just jump in and say that I think yeah. that um, when we first set out on this journey, we were we were very anti-capitalist and, um, and we were very anti-corporations, very anti-big business. Uh, and actually, as we've spent more time and we've been in factories and things, there's some brands, that, that uh, some businesses that are actually trying to do a good job. One of Marks and Spencer's is the one that I, mm. I, every time I'm in an amazing factory, uh, they've, been, they've been a Marks and Spencer's factory either presently or mm. in the past. Um, and Marks and Spencer's standard is, was worldwide was just unbelievable. Um, a similar- but, but the problem you've got is uh, like, the, the thing that's happened is Marks and Spencer's has had to compete with these really new fast fashion brands like Boohoo and it's this impossible. The, so it's driven their prices down. They've sent all their stuff a, abroad. This is, really, it, it, this is a really, really important mm. point. This is a really important point. And this is very topical at the minute with the Leicester, the Leicester factory thing. Yeah. And, and this, uh, I know it stayed in the news quite a bit, the Leicester factory thing, but this needs to be talked about way more than it, than, mm. than it already is. Just because recount what's happening so, so for people who don't know. Uh, so the Sunday Times about five weeks ago, Sunday Times uh, did an article. Uh, they, they'd sent someone undercover in a Leicester factory who'd found that Boohoo were producing things in these Leicester factories and paying workers three or four pounds an hour. 
Um, Which and is the, obviously like less than half the minimum less wage. Less than half the minimum wage in the UK. And uh, there's thousands of people. A lot of them, are, I think the, I think all of them are foreign, actually. No, I think a lot are. not. Um, some are here illegally, so there's not a lot they can do. They've been, you know, encouraged to come here illegally. And then they're, so they're scared to speak out. They don't really know where to go and speak out. They don't have a voice. The problem that you've got is that... Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why this blows my mind that we're not addressing this this mm. uh, insane situation and allowing companies like Boohoo to just run away with it. Uh, what it does is it moves the it moves the goalposts for the for the competition. How, how does the, how does that affect the competition? What does the competition do? Without, they're either, following they're either going to lose market share or they're going to have to also cut corners mm. uh, to keep up with them. And that's what's happening. That's why Marks and Spencers, you got Marks and Spencers now and they're trying to sell things for like 15, 20 quid and they're, they're, the quality's dropped. And, and Boohoo's making out like they didn't know. It's impossible that Boohoo didn't know. You can't make a six pound dress in, in, the, UK. Uh, in the UK. You can't make a dress and sell it for six pound in the UK. A pound of that is VAT. You've only got five, five pounds for the dress. Half of that's your margin, which means you're paying the factory two pounds 50. The factory's got two, got 50% margin in that two pounds 50. That takes it down to 125. You've got to get fabric, fabric. and labour in the UK for £1.25 to make a dress. And, and so a- what should happen now then? What has to happen now? Because what you're actually saying when I read out that stat about 87%, you know, basically on landfill, what's so interesting is that you've gone through this journey and you're actually saying, hang on a minute, there are actually some players out here there trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe the way consumers consume should be more addressed rather than those who produce, let's say. Yeah. Surely it has to be addressed. It has yeah. to come from the government. The thing is, the government seemed to, like there's something been going on in Leicester where it's been it's been turned a blind eye by the government. Like it, it's, the local council. The local council's not been addressing it, and they, but they're aware of it. Like everybody in Leicester says it's just, it's not secret. Like everybody in Leicester is aware of these factories. So like there's no way they didn't know. So there's something has to come from the government on this to to put things in place to stop it from happening. But also, yeah, I think as a as a customer, mm. you need to be looking and saying like, the thing is you'll notice that Boohoo, uh, the Boohoo founder recently posted that they think that they're doing a really good thing because they're bringing 40% of their productions in the UK. So they're bringing all these jobs to the UK. But if that was the case, which, yes, great, something to shout about, but why has he not shouted about it in, in the past? Because he's kept it under underhand. If something's made in Britain and you're paying people fairly, you sure. shout about yeah. that because that is such a great selling point. Absolutely. It's a great point, isn't it, for yeah. your brand? Um, and I just want to drive this point home because, uh, you know, you've got a really a really good audience, um, a really uh, intelligent audience that I think are, uh, are interested in things like this. And I, want to, I just want to drive it home that, this is this is insanely damaging to the made in Britain brand. Yeah. This is so damaging. Yeah. And the government has to, you know, Pretty Patel saying all the right words, which you know, this government is, is good at saying they, they they've got to step up and sort this. This is yeah. just the, the level of damage this is doing to is gonna is going UK, to be yeah. insane. Well, thank you. That is really interesting. And as you said, this will really get people thinking when they listen yeah. to this podcast. Um, I often talk about the positive impact that businesses can have on the world. Uh, just recently, I was talking to the founder of Ella's Kitchen and Paul said, business is the number one way of changing the world for good. Yeah, yeah. And it's obvious that you're both very passionate about this and you're bringing around 
real change in your industry. I know you're committed to paying a fair living wage to all your employees, that in India, you're actually paying four times the state minimum wage, that you're also committed to reducing your environmental impact using only recycled or compostable mailing bags and cards in your order. You've built this high standard of social sustainability at the heart of your business that now your customers all feel that they're part of too, which is Mm. just amazing. And I'm sure that rubs off on their own lives. Can you just talk more about that in what you feel it's probably done to Lucy and Yak and what you might feel it will do to your future? This is the thing. I I read an article recently that said religion might have have died in the West, but brands have become the new religion. People follow a brand that they feel resonates with all of their values and they belong to that community then. And And as a result, they expect more from from that brand than just a a, a product. They do. It it raises the bar. And I think like, you know, we recently introduced, uh, we're trialing a 30 day working week, a 30 hour working week, 30 day working week, (laughs) a 30 hour working week. We kicked that in actually during coronavirus because we thought, you know, let's let's not work as many hours. And then we've thought, you know what, productivity might keep going at that rate as well. Like we might still get the same productivity if people are only in work six hours instead of eight, but the salaries have kept the same. So try like things like that. And, and Chris, you you were saying, weren't you, that like I think when when one business does something, it pushes others to follow suit. And so it raises the bar on everything. So we want to really talk about the 30 hour working week, showing that actually productivity hasn't dropped. Everyone's happier, everyone's getting to spend more time at home. Because I think that if there's one thing that lockdown has really made us all realize is that you know work's not the be all and end all and we do actually want to spend more time with our families and be at home a lot more and you know do the things we enjoy doing so customers have the power to push businesses but I think that's the thing that a lot of the time as a customer you don't realize but where you spend your money dictates like how the how the market behaves so you you really can make that change if you just choose to spend your money if you stop spending your money with someone who's unethical and spend it with someone that is ethical, it will encourage those unethical companies to start changing because they won't exist if they don't. So it, it, it kind of, it's I think so, it's a customer that's realizing that. It's so interesting you say that because, um, you know, at Holly & Co, we, we have this vote, hashtag vote with your money. Yeah. And, and, and it's vote with your money for the kind of world that you want to live in. Mm. Tell me, um, your 30-hour week, people listening, if they've got a team, it potentially fills them if they're honest with themselves, with dread for that second. <laughs> mm. Because we know what it takes to run a business, pay the wages. Can you pay yourself? You say that it hasn't hit productivity. Um, you know what sums it up really nicely is we're talking to uh, one of our suppliers at the minute. We're working with him. He's quite he's new with us. And uh, when we said about you know increasing the, his workers' wages, showing him the benefits of paying better wages... Um, and we said, look, let's do the separate factory and, and um, pay the higher wages. And he said, yeah, but if I pay the higher wages, everyone's going to want to work there. <laughs> and we said, we said, ex- exactly. Yes. You're going to get yeah, all that's the best the, stuff. That, that's, the, that's the whole point. Uh, if everyone's fresh and they, they're mentally uh, well and they want to come into work and they're not in work for too long hours, you're probably going to get the best out of the, out of those people. Mm. Like, when, when you look at it like that, it, it isn't rocket science. And and I, I agree with what you said a second ago. I know there's loads of people in different positions, loads of people in businesses with different positions from us. Um, you know, I, I obviously want to choose my words carefully because we're in a position now after three years, you know, where we could we could go one way of, of uh, buying, buying yachts and Ferraris 
um, which a lot of people do, or we can go the other way of investing it in the in the staff and in mm. the business, um, and pushing the, just pushing the boundaries on business. You know, the, this is what's weird, isn't it? Is it feels that the, the workplace hasn't moved forwards. We've had the five day working week, eight hour five day working week for so long. If anything, it feels like working practices are being eroded by Amazons and and yeah. and, mm. and the gang. Yeah, it's like it, getting worse. It feels again. like it's actually going getting worse rather than better. I thought at this point now. I thought we'd be talking about retiring in, in late 50s and uh, we shouldn't be spending most of our life at jobs that we don't like. That, yeah. is, that is just crazy. It's it's just an insane idea. And we have to figure out a, um, a way of moving past that. Um, and so hopefully hopefully it's going to go well, good. But, you know, you said something earlier about, you know, people wearing Lucy and Yak. Um, and, I, and I think this is an interesting switch that's happening in, in society uh, people used to want to wear uh, designer brands like Hugo yes. Bosses and all these sort of things, and and it was it was a display of how much wealth I had, and that that cha- that's changing. The currency is starting to move from Patagonia. The, cur- <laughs> the currency is starting to move from yeah. how much wealth have you got, how successful are you in monetary terms, to uh, what, are what are your morals? Yeah, and we've just we've just unintentionally sort of got on the crest of that mm. wave. We were laying in bed like about a year and a half ago, weren't we? And we're like, what is it? Why are people willing to wear this brand on them? Because we could understand why they bought the dungarees, but we were like, we then put the logo on them and we're like, why are people buying this logo? They've never heard of us. Like, what is it? It's, it's not an expensive brand. It dawned on us, didn't we? We were like, it's because it says something different about who they are. It's not about, it's not mm. about how much wealth they've yeah. got. It's not an exclusive mm. club. Anyone can afford to, you know, at least own one pair of dungarees, but it, it's it's a club that says you know we all like share the care, same values we care, and we yeah. care about people and we care about this planet and we care about our future and, and I think the new currency yeah. yeah we've teamed up with our friends at three and all year we'll be working together to make business dreams come true share your dreams on social using hashtag holly and co dreamer and who knows what will come true with three means business plan i love that you can get up to 500 pounds worth of benefits from their specialist partners to help give your business a helping hand whether you need support with accounting or building a new website three have got you covered now over to a short story about those that dreamt big and flew. I came home after a year and although my profession was only hairdressing, I knew I could change it. These are the words of a young Vidal Sassoon. His name is synonymous with hair throughout the world, but unknown to many, he in fact sold his business in the early 1980s to devote himself to philanthropy. And it is this continued commitment to do things in a better way, a Vidal way, that defines his story. Born to Jewish parents in Shepherd's Bush, London, Vidal spent seven years in an orphanage with his brother after his single mother was too poor to keep them with her. Suffering much anti-Semitic behaviour from fellow boys, his childhood was not an easy one. His mother visited as much as she was allowed and retained a strong bond with Vidal. But in 1939, alongside his brother and hundreds of thousands of other London children, Vidal found himself being evacuated to Holt in Wiltshire. On his return to London, age 14, his mother told Vidal that her ambition for him was to become a hairdresser. And Vidal was soon working as an apprentice after a kind-hearted hairdressing school owner decided to waive the fee and take a chance on Sassoon. 
After finding his passion, Vidal went from strength to strength, opening his first salon in Mayfair in 1954, attracting the rich and famous as clients. In 1973, after taking the Sassoon brand to the US and opening the first ever multinational hairdressing chain, he released the first line of Vidal Sassoon hair products. In the 1980s, Vidal sold his business and turned his attentions to his lifelong commitment to eradicate anti-Semitism and started the Vidal Sassoon International Center for the Study of Anti-Semitism. He also created the Vidal Sassoon Foundation, where he supported a whole host of philanthropic causes, including the Boys Club of America and relief efforts following Hurricane Katrina. He was working to make the world a better place right up to his death in 2012. As Vidal once said, the only place where success comes before work is in the dictionary. Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. To discover more about Three's business plans, search Three Means Business. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. You strongly believe, like I do, I think, that this is the future. How do you think someone can tackle it if it's not already there? You know, what would you encourage them to look at? Is it what they're personally passionate about? Mm. Is it, you know, what is it that for you, if you now retrospectively look at this and you say, you know what, that's what it was. Was it about everyone being treated fairly? What, yeah. what was your what was your moment, your seedling that grew? We we hate we hate injustice. We hate the idea of of somebody making loads of money and and whilst the you know the person making it gets paid nothing. And I think you know we've ended up you know working on sustainability and trying to be sustainable, but that's never at the core of what we did. It was about the people. It's, and I think a lot of brands at the minute are really so heavily focused on sustainability because it's become this buzzword that they they just like the people have just got forgotten still it's like people are making this like real people are sitting and making these garments and I think I think if you're looking to start a brand or like reinvent your brand like like you said I definitely think looking at personally what you care about because otherwise if you've not got the passion there for it and you don't like really care about something then you're gonna get bored you're gonna get sick of it it's not gonna come across genuine you're just not gonna enjoy what you do and I think we we've had times where we go through periods where we're like Oh, it feels a bit flat at the minute. I feel like I'm get a bit, getting a bit disconnected from the brand. And, you know, a, fo- a FaceTime with Ishmael sorts that right out because mm. we remember why we were doing it. And, and I- if you can put yourself in, in the shoes of someone sat at a sewing machine for 15 hours a day that's earning enough money to just feed themselves and their family, and it's always going to be like that, that has to be enough. That has to be enough for you to go... I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this properly. I, the, the fact that there's anyone out there that is having to suffer, um, not having the hope uh, and the dreams to, to move things forward, I'll, 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 I, that's enough for me to make sure that I, I always do this better. And uh, just to add to that, one of the things that I think makes human beings the happiest is connection with other people. And I think if you're, mm-hmm. if you're going, if we're visiting India and we know that we're treating these people like shit, how like our time yeah. in India would be so much worse. We go there and we're treated like family, like you know they throw big parties yeah, big for party, our arrival, and we just and so we've had to create it like that because otherwise we wouldn't have enjoyed, 
you know, doing what oh. we do, and we would have we would have switched off by now. Holly, you're going to have to come. We're going to take you out. For yeah. a oh my god, I'd love <laughs> to love come. Yeah. I would love to come. I mean, you know what? I I feel teary even hearing you talk because there's, you know, there's um some of us founders, I think, and I I think a lot of people out there. What you just said is connection with people. You know, when I think of my own journey, people say why are you doing it again? And what are you going to do? And why do you do this? And I say, well, I believe that building a business, doing what you love is a, one of the key reasons people can be happy, mm. you know, um, controlling their own destiny, making change in the world that they feel is positive. Mm. And actually, if I can ignite one dream to happen, support someone, make them feel they can do it. And then I watched that journey, which is where I had the privilege at Not on the High Street for, you know, it's 15 years old now. And I've wow. been able to watch this unbelievable journey of all of the 5,000 businesses. And from that woman who would sit in my office and, you know, she was um, sort of, you know, a bit you know, uh, tired, let's put it that way. And she was selling something in the school playground. And then over the years, I would meet that same woman. And then, you know, 10 years on, she's employing 60 people herself and doing this thing. I've got shivers even saying it because these are the true stories. And that's what I've been able to be part of. And that's what you're part of. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, what we're trying to say here, which is it is so beyond anything else. You know, if we can make those changes... Not only if we had a journey of a lifetime building a brand, you know, not only yeah. is it just unbelievably exciting, but we've we've made a difference. Yeah. And that is the power of brands in our future. And it's so exciting. The way you've described it is just monumentally bloody brilliant. You're three years in. What's the dr- what's your dreams for Lucy and Yak? Do you know what? We had this conversation, I think like a year in, we were like, oh, we need to grow, grow, because obviously we need to make sure no one else does this before, like, we're established. Um, and then we, then like, as, as we started feeling like, you know what, we're, we're in quite a strong position now. We've actually, this last sort of six months, had the conversation of, we actually need to slow down the growth a little bit on purpose, which feels crazy. It feels like, why would you stunt the growth? But we really want to do that so that we can focus because it's really easy as the brand's getting bigger for, for things to get missed, for ethical practices to, to lessen, you know, like to, yes. to loosen a little bit. Because it's really because in the past, it's just me and him going out to India, visiting the factories. As our supply chain gets bigger, that gets a bit more complicated. So we realise that, you know, that's one thing we absolutely do not want to compromise on. So we have decided to slow down the growth. Because our, our ultimate goal, personally, is... Um, we love traveling, so we, we've actually sometimes we've sat and been like, "This business is tying us down," and, um, and then and then we then a few weeks later we'll go, "We're crazy!" Like most people dream of this, and we're 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 like, "I want to go and travel," and so so we, we're kind of like we don't want to grow too fast because we actually want to be able to take that time away mm. and actually do the things we enjoy doing. Because for us, we want to build a brand where people who work with us. Um, all get that really nice work-life balance. Um, he read the Patagonia uh, founders oh, yeah. book, yeah, Let cool. My People Go Surfing. Um, and we, we really, um, management by absence he does, doesn't management he? Because he's always away doing he's amazing things. Comes back, takes them all surfing. Yeah. And then that, that, that's our dream, really. Well, um, what an inspiration to follow. You know, what, <laughs> and also by the sounds of it, you're you're growing a lasting brand. You're not you're not caught in that rat race of fear that 
us founders can get into. Um, so and I think it will be that. so, so beneficial for people to hear this. Um, my God, I have loved this chat. I honestly, just your your energy, even though we're on our computer screens, is infectious. Um, I end all of these interviews with the analogy that um, running your own business um, is like being on an epic roller coaster. And if you were both sitting in your dungarees in on that roller coaster, what would you say has been one of your biggest lows so far? One of the big lows, and I think for me this year, has been um, feeling like we aren't entirely living up to our um, customers' expectations, you know, um, all the things that have been going on at the minute with Black Lives Matter. We, you know, we've really felt like actually we weren't doing a lot about that prior to what's just happened with George Floyd. So we, I, I hate the idea of letting people down. And I, and I feel like when our customers, they hold us in such high regard and sometimes it's it's unattainable um, what, what they expect mm. of us. But I still feel like, you know, I hate that idea of letting anybody down. And But then at the same time, I've really learned through that period of, do you know what, we can't get everything right straight away. But once we realise when we're doing something maybe not quite as as expected, then then how do we learn and grow and change? And moving forward, we'll fix that. And so it's, it is difficult to, to sort of fully pull those lows out and say then don't they always turn into a positive? Mm-hmm. What would you say? Um, having a business is difficult because uh, with staffing, as, as you will know mm-hmm. yourself, but sometimes you've just got to sack people. Like there's, yeah. there's no, yeah. there's yeah. no uh, two ways about it. Sometimes you have to go, the, the business is more important than this person. This person is going to cause more it's damage to the business. Um, but it's, it's just it's just a thing of running a business that, that I think not a lot of people realise. And like, it gets to you. People, it, I don't think people understand how much it gets to you. I, think, I don't think people... Oh, if you've never sat yeah. that side of the desk, I, I, I get that it's difficult being sacked. I've been sacked myself. I get that that's hard. But if you've not sat the other side of the desk and actually done yeah. the, the, the sacking, you have just no idea how hard it is. Yeah. You, Sometimes you, you, the business just has to be more important. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if you're the parent of that business it falls down to you and yeah. it's a very difficult thing to do and conversely that greatest high with your the wind in your hair chris um what was what was your, have you got your greatest, greatest high? high it's got to be meeting ishmael hasn't it like you know we still say to this day like we when we're having a rubbish day or we've had a rubbish week and we don't realize then ishmael phones us and we're like oh my god everything's fine like why would <laughs> yeah so ishmael honestly not not only on a business level but on a personal level like i don't think we could have got through a lot of what we have without ishmael he's like he's become such a good friend and that, and that probably like the the biggest high is like most people that we've met through the business like all of our team he's just seeing staff happy you know like when we had the christmas party and all the staff were there uh jobs are so important aren't they business and jobs mm. are so important to the economy to people's livelihoods to people's happiness um, and so providing jobs that pe- i mean yeah. just knowing how how much of a positive impact you're having on on people and the community uh that's probably one of my highs definitely yeah god you too i just have adored this interview oh my goodness i will have your words in my heart for the rest <laughs> of my journey because you know, you are a brand, you've done so well, three years old, you have got everything ahead of you. And you're so nice. And you know what I mean? You're so nice. You can tell shit matters to you. And you really are going to change the world. And that's quite incredible that I get to look at you and know that. And that's just amazing. And we're at that time of the podcast 
where Chris, I'm actually just going to hand over to you um, yeah. uh, to read a letter to your younger self. Um, and I don't know what it's going to say, but thank you both. Thank you, Chris, um, for this time with you today. Uh, thanks, thanks Holly. Holly. I just just before I jump onto that as well, thanks for obviously thanks for having us um, and uh, the the great work you've done as well yeah. over the last fifteen the last fifteen years. You um, you know it's people like you that that uh, laid down the path yeah. for people like us. You know we we wouldn't we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for people like you. Um, uh, I know you cry after the letter. I'm trying to get you to cry. Thanks, thanks for having thanks for having us on. This this is a uh, my letter is a really short letter. Um, just to give it a bit of context, um, my dad died when I was 21. I'm not going to be able to get all this letter out. Even as I just said that, I, I realised <laughs> I wasn't going to get all the letter out. Um, so my dad died when I was 21, and I don't talk about it a lot. I'm 38 now, so 17 years ago. I still don't talk about it a lot. Um, I'm not sure why I decided to do that today. It, it felt like a good idea earlier. Right, well, I'm here. Um, so uh, I was I was uh, extremely close to my dad. Uh, he, he was he was uh, my best friend. He was my hero, and he was um, my dad. Uh, and so after he died, um, I was in a, a I was 21, and I was in a really uh, I was in quite a bad place. Um, so this is just a letter to me in my in my sort of early to mid 20s post. Post my dad dying. Um, so, dear Chris, everything's going to be okay. I know you're struggling. I know you feel lost. These feelings won't go away soon, but they will go away eventually. Try not to hurt those people close to you. Lay off the alcohol. It's not really helping. Everything's going to be okay. Thank you. And it was. And it was. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? So many um, times when I've spoken to founders and these unbelievable things have happened in their lives where they felt so lost and their businesses build them back up. Mm-hmm. You know, their businesses, their purpose, that thing in them. And then you look at those who have lost um, and you think what he will be looking down at you thinking. I say that all the time. He will be, you know, so proud, so proud of you. (laughs) And he never would have thought that you, the guy that was selling cars, you know, (laughs) going traveling, is now honestly changing the world. And um, do you remember that? Do you remember that? And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing such a obviously painful moment of your life. But um, yeah, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Lots of love. (laughs) Before you go, don't forget, if you want to be in a chance to win a 19-minute mentoring session with me, all you need to do is sign up to NatWest Business Builder, which is packed full of videos and advice, all with the aim to help you build your business and arm you with all the tools you need. To find out more, head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. Your support really means the world to me and it really does help spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come